Hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Barnard. And I'm Victor Gamow. In this series, we chat with software developers and technology leaders to tackle your biggest API connectivity challenges. Stay tuned to this episode for tools, tactics, strategies that will help you to take your distributed architectures to the next level. Let's begin. I'm extremely delighted to welcome today Elise von Jones as a principal developer advocate from Conico here at Concast. Elise, welcome. It's really great to have you here. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, you are um, known from, you know, uh, observability community and uh, SRE community very well. I uh, follow you for a while, uh, given my time at, uh, at the Confluent. I heard some of the uh, good things about you. So I'm super excited that to have you finally in the show. Um, if you are not me and you don't know who Liz is, can you Liz, tell us, uh, our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I've worked as a site reliability engineer for roughly 15 years. Um, and I basically took this interesting pivot about five years ago and switched from being a site reliability engineer on individual teams at Google, like Google Flights or uh, Google Cloud Load Balancer. I switched to advocating for the wider SRE community because it turns out that there are more people outside of Google practicing SRE than there are inside of Google practicing SRE. And I wanted to kind of help everyone in the community share best practices and have more manageable systems. So that journey two and a half years ago led me to come work at Honeycomb, uh, where I help people with thinking about how do you make it easier to debug your systems. That's great. And um, before we go in, into this aspect, I want to explore a little bit about your past. Is it fair to say that you coined this statement that the SRE, class SRE implements DevOps? Yeah, that was definitely something that um, that Seth Vargo and I came up with. And then that became a chapter actually in the site reliability workbook. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about this. Um, so the people know uh, there's like a DevOps thing and different people have a different definition about this. Um, tell us what is your definition and how it's different from SRE. For those of you who, for some reasons, were um, not following the, the, the recent trends for last uh, like 10 years or so, give or take. Yeah, I think there's this interesting pattern that's happened where in the early 2000s, there were different organizational needs that sprung up to solve the problem of how do we wrangle needing to ship software faster and more reliably? What happens if the software that we write is really, really critical? And one of those movements was DevOps, which was a cultural movement that really aimed to make it possible for software engineers to run their own software to kind of uh, practice continuous delivery, kind of practicing agile operations. And the other phenomenon that we saw was DevOps, or sorry, was SRE, which happened at Google, where Ben Trainer Sloss, the founder of SRE, said, you know, we need to take a different approach to running Google systems. It was kind of a similar set of problem constraints and almost a similar solution to the problem just encoded at least to start with in Google's particular organization structures, right? Like of having particular management structures, of having particular philosophies around measurement of reliability. And over time, what happened was these two communities were initially a little bit at each other's throats of, you know, who came first, you know, who is approaches the right approach. Yeah. yeah. But 
as one of the people from Google who had a lot of interactions with the outside community, I looked at this and I was like, wait a second, like the DevOps principles, every single one of them, it's implemented in site reliability engineering. We might call it something different, but it's like a concrete opinionated implementation of the DevOps principles, right? Whereas yeah. DevOps gives you a lot of freedom as to, you know, how do you do this? Well, you know, it's up to you. There are some, you know, best practices from the community. Um, but I think what I see happening more and more is that both the DevOps and the site reliability engineering communities actually are turning into this kind of one community that is starting to become known in the field as kind of platform engineering, right? Like mm-hmm. this idea that instead of having, you know, specialists in operations necessarily, right? Like you instead have this idea of building infrastructure for product teams at your company, figuring out what's the right platform, how do we contribute to it? How do we make developers productive? So it kind of encompasses more than just, you know, production operations. It encompasses things like uh, continuous delivery. It encompasses things like, uh, like, like uh, build infrastructure. It encompasses things like reliability measurements, right? Like it's kind of this broader field that I think has a little bit more leverage. So um, this is a very good point. And um, usually uh, when you talk about this um, reliability, uh, it, for many people who are not maybe like doing this as their like a day-to-day thing, it might sound something intangible, something that it's very difficult to measure. And like, what exactly is this, and how you would measure reliability? Like, um, because uh, the people wants to have them systems reliable and run the twenty-four by seven, but uh, and if it runs, it runs. It doesn't, it doesn't like a, what is it between and how you measure this like a fuzzy thing in between? Uh, what, what would be like right metric to look at? Yeah, I think that when I introduce people to the idea of a service level objective of an error budget, it kind of blows their minds a little bit, right? But the way that I concretely anchor it is that I point out that it doesn't matter how reliable you make your service. Right. It doesn't make sense to you know, spend billions of dollars launching satellites into space in order to make your product more reliable, right? To get that additional nanosecond or femtosecond of uptime. Right. If ultimately at the end of the day, people are accessing it from their phones, phones run out of battery, phones uh, run run out of cell signal, right? Like your cell phone at best is going to be about 99.95 uh, percent reliable at best. Yeah. Right. So why would you make your service six nines, seven nines, eight nines reliable? It just doesn't make sense. It's a poor investment of money. It's a poor investment of your energy too. Right. All the energy that you're investing and over investing in reliability could have been spent towards innovation. Right. So that's kind of my view is like figure out what are the customer's minimum requirements for reliability? You know, are they okay with, you know, hitting refresh every now and then if it doesn't quite work? Right. Yeah. And after that, you can invest everything else in in features. So it's kind of so, helping quantify that trade off. Is it somehow related to like uh, the service service level agreement that we have with our customers, and we you know stating that this is our level of service that we provide, and this is what you pay in our as money? But what about uh, like a it's a kind of like external metric? What what about like internal metric that, that the team uh, should employ inside the um, when they running this platform, running this product for you know for the you know for the we we're talking mostly about the SaaS teams, but it's also applicable to teams who run some internal software in the companies. Maybe it's not available to outside internet, but there's a lot of companies who run internal platforms and systems. This needs to be also reliable. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think that service level objectives do not necessarily require you to have a service level agreement. 
And in fact, often your SLO and SLA will be different, even if there is an external customer with an SLA, right? You have to think about from the SLA, that's a legal construct, right? That's a sales contract. That's a legal construct yeah, of exactly. what, you know, what's the minimum amount of reliability or else we have to pay you money, right? Or give you a refund. But when we think about customer happiness, we should aim to make customers happy and delighted, not just, you know, not suing us, right? So I think that that concept of thinking about, you know, what are we defining as a good user experience, that translates regardless of whether you're serving internal or external customers. So kind of interview your customers, figure out what they need, right? Like product managers, user experience researchers, these people can be very, very helpful when you're trying to understand what are your users' needs, whether they be internal or external. Yeah. And uh, the important thing for me, for like you, you mentioned, this is like a very interesting point. Like we want to, our users to be delighted, but we don't want our users to sue us. So that's a very uh, important um, thing, how the engineers and uh uh, for example, sales organization look at the things. You know, the engineers want to build the systems that user will enjoy to use, and uh, the salespeople will make sure that like everything is would be. You know, they will pay us money. We will be in a good relationship. They will. Right, and you want your engineers to you want your engineers to know if something is in danger of violating the SLO long before you get to the point of SLAs being involved. Right, so yeah. that's kind of why you need to be a little bit more aggressive with your SLOs. Yeah. Can you give us some uh, good examples of, um, you know, structuring this like a service level objectives uh, for the teams, so for, for the listeners who listen to us, something that's maybe some of the pointers to interesting reads where they can learn a little bit more about this? Yeah. So I highly recommend things like the uh, Google SRE book. Um, and there actually is a recent publication by my friend Alex Hidalgo uh, called that's actually the service level objective book. Mm -hmm. um, so both of those are published by O'Reilly. Um, but I think that, you know, when it comes down to actually concretely understanding it, let's talk through an actual example. So at Honeycomb, we are a company that understands your production systems. We have to ingest telemetry from your production systems that encapsulates transactions that are flowing through your microservices and flowing through your application. So one of our service level objectives is that if you send us an event that 99.99% of the time, we're going to ingest it successfully and make it available for querying, right? So that means that less than one in 10,000 events can be dropped. That does not mean that we're aiming for perfection, right? But it also means that it is a stricter threshold than one in 100 or one in, in 1,000 events that can, that can be dropped, right? So it's kind of this striking this balance that enables us to innovate, to make production changes, while at the same time preserving your trust in the fidelity of the data that we're giving you, right? So that's kind of an example of an SLO, which is saying, you know, this is our target, 99.99%, and this is how we're measuring it and the time period that we're measuring it over. For instance, we say we're aiming for four nines over a 30-day window. Mm -hmm. And roughly, if we had full outages, right, like a full outage would, would you know, we could only do that for 4.3 minutes. Uh, before we blow our SLO and say, okay, we need to reset, we need to revisit reliability, right? Yeah. But often, I think more of the time, right, like to get back to your point about, you know, full downtime, up or down, the answer is not, yeah. you know, up or down, right? Like the answer is sometimes it's kind of up and kind of down, right? So sometimes, you know, basically at steady state, we might expect to serve, you know, maybe one out of every one out of every 10 to the, you know, 10 to the fifth, right? Like one out of every 100,000 requests might just, you know, 
time out or get dropped, right? Like that's just natural noise in the system. Or we might accidentally serve like 1% errors for a little while, right? And if we're serving 1% errors, we can tolerate that for a little bit longer than 4.3 minutes, right? Like we can tolerate that for, I, I think, 400 minutes, right? Like that gives us enough time to respond to correct the anomaly. So kind of we stop thinking about things as kind of, you know, black and white, up or down. We think about things in shades of yeah. gray. And like how bad is it really? Well, it depends on how far down we are. Yeah, and um, I think the, you you, mean, you you mentioned like a very good point about um, these uh, numbers, these measurements, the thresholds allows us to have a um, internal um, the internal uh, ability to you know to make the changes the when we want, when we like uh, to make those changes. So it's not like a oh okay, so we were down already. Uh, this uh, this month for two minutes like can we afford to be down another minute just to do like a quick deploy of some very important feature right uh, that's something that you were talking uh correct me if i'm wrong when we're talking about the error budget so um you know you can afford to fail and it should be a kind of like a in the mindset that it's okay to fail because the computer's notoriously unreliable people even more notoriously unreliable so the, the mistakes will happen so we can uh, we can work around this but there should be some uh, threshold and uh, to the point of this threshold and this innovation like what's your take on um i don't want to call it like a move fast break things but essentially that mindset that was uh, emphasized uh, in the facebook back in the day and some people use this as they are like a marching order so yay let's do this but um probably there's a middle ground somewhere right that you know you cannot you cannot move slow because in this uh, time and these years, innovation, if you not innovate, you will die like, as a business. Um, yeah, that's where I think we were form reformulating Honeycomb's values recently. And one of the things that uh, kind of stuck and stuck around was this idea that fast and close to right is better than perfect, right? You still have to be close to right. You know, you can't just be fast, but you, but, you know, you don't necessarily have to put perfect polish on every single thing. Because you do have to, you do have to innovate. Um, so I think that's kind of that encapsulates a lot of our thinking around that. Is is that you know there are some things that you absolutely have to get right, right? Like for instance, privacy is a thing where if you get it wrong once, like you lose people's trust permanently. But I think yes. that when it comes to kind of broad reliability and kind of for less critical things, yes, you can afford to break them as long as you don't do it too often, right? It's not break things all the time, yes. right? It's it's kind of you know. What is the level that I need in order to preserve trust in my users, and then aim to that level? Yeah, and I think it's it's a good uh, mindset to have, uh, like, a, as a part of the culture of the company. Yeah, so no one fire you if you would, you know, do some some mistake. However, you know, do not <laughs> do not try to do this like very often because it's uh, it's just right. Like, don't don't be reckless. But if you do yeah. make a mistake, right? Like we have a blameless culture, right? Like yeah. we are interested in understanding how to break. How can we fortify the system so it doesn't happen again? Exactly, and how we you know the why it has happened and how we will not make this happen in the future. Like how we can make the system like uh, strong enough. So, what's your 
you know, given the, you know, thing that we're talking about innovation, things like how, what's, what's your take on, um, you know, the, the continuous delivery? Like how often, how often you deploy the production system at uh, Honeycomb? Like how many times per day? I remember there was uh, some of the, yeah. you know, some magical numbers from the bigger uh, the companies like Netflix, Amazon, they deploy a thousand times per day in production, things like what's your um, uh, deployment uh, cadence at Honeycomb? Right now, we're deploying to production about 12 to 14 times per day, uh, and we would like to make that faster. To us, it's not necessarily the number of times that we deploy per day that's really what matters. What matters is the latency. How long does it take between a developer writing a change, laying it in production? Uh, how long does that take? And for us, it is less than two hours, um, typically less than an hour even. And we think that that's really the sweet spot. Uh, you know, ideally, we'd like it to be closer to 15 minutes, right? But kind of 15 minutes to one hour is the sweet spot for kind of the time between writing a writing piece of code, getting code review, and, and landing it in production. Because if you have that short feedback loop that enables you to, instead of walking away to get a cup of coffee or like coming back to it tomorrow, you are watching it as it goes into production. And that gives you a degree of confidence in, is my code doing exactly what I meant to when you still have that state fresh in your head of what did I mean to do? Um, so I think that that's kind of the critical number, right? Like, obviously, the kind of Netflixes and the and the Facebooks, right? Like, they, they have many, many more engineers than we do. So, of course, they're going to need to deploy to production many more times per day than we do, right? Like, I don't think that's the meaningful metric. I think it's the kind of, uh, you know, I look to the DORA metrics, the uh, State of DevOps report by Accelerate. Um, mm -hmm. I think that those Dora metrics are a more precise encapsulation, right? Not how many times did you deploy, but what's the lead time? Yeah, it's actually it's pretty good, uh, pretty good point, and uh, it's um, it's it, it's it's very good to point out that it's not about how often, but uh, what what's the quality of this uh, of this release would be, and, right? Exactly. Uh, and what percentage of your releases are rolled back, right? Like what yeah. percentage of them fail catastrophically? Yeah, which exactly. ones? Which ones can you right? Like, and and a failure is okay as long as you have some kind of rollback mechanism, right? Do you have the ability right. to route traffic via blue green? Do you have the ability to to quickly turn off a feature flag, right? Like, I think that those things can really mitigate the the like allowed amount of failure in in, in your releases. Um, when I when I was um, uh, when I was in consultancy, uh, like there was a consultancy business before, and after that I work as a, uh, a solutions architect in my previous jobs. I all when we talk about the um, things about regression and how to we will make sure that uh, we're not actually doing the worst to our system. I uh, usually tell people that you know before you start you know doing this, like establish this like a baseline. Yes. This baseline would would be depend on your external SLA, internal SLOs, and things like that. However, you cannot just say like we want to do like two times faster because you don't know two times from what point. And yes. uh, usually, people are talking about like how we can increase uh, a throughput or reduce latency, but from what point? And uh, we're talking about the you know the, the observing the system as soon as you can and putting this like measurements in place um as soon as you can uh into your system i'm not telling talking about like a, the like a like a performance measurement but at least some of the numbers that you understand how the system performs so 
Um, and this is how I'm trying to steer us to conversation about observability because it's one of the pillars and one of the, um, how the set put this, one of the pillars of DevOps and one of the methods that was implemented in SRE uh, practice is to provide a, uh, the measure everything, you know, but everything, I just do air quotes, not necessarily like everything, everything, but everything that matters. Yes. Um, I love so, that formulation, um, everything that matters. Uh, thank you. And like, I would like to hear like your philosophy around this, since um, this is your bread and butter, uh, and a little bit of honey on the top. Um, that's your uh, <laughs> no pun intended. And um, talk, let's let's talk about this. Yeah. So I often point to time to recovery. Right. SLOs cover time to meaningful detection of how long does it take until you detect something that's impacting customers. But I think it's equally important to pay attention to making sure you have the signals and telemetry coming out of your system that will enable you to understand why are things broken, how are things broken, for who are things broken. Because often problems relate these days to complex interactions of specific services at specific versions for specific customers. And you're never going to turn that up if you kind of have bulk aggregate statistics. Um, so when we talk about measuring the right things, I think the primary source of data that I encourage people to have is distributed tracing data. That if you have a service mesh or if you have the ability to instrument your code, that ability to trace the execution of requests flowing through your system really helps you understand where is this latency coming from. Right. If I'm in danger of blowing my service level objective, right? If I'm supposed to be achieving, you know, 200 millisecond page loads, and instead I'm starting to serve a lot of 500 millisecond page loads, to be able to track down where is that extra 300 milliseconds coming from is super, super powerful. And it gets even more powerful when it's not just, you know, anonymous traces in a system, right? Where you can figure out which microservice, right? Maybe, but also to have things like, you know, region, like language pack, right? Like to have all of these fields that are meaningful attached to your traces so that you can then kind of slice and dice and iteratively explore and understand what are the commonalities, right? You know, what changed? And I think that that really helps you debug things faster because the old approach to kind of, you know, this uh, measure everything was mm -hmm. let's monitor everything, let's set alerts on everything, you know, CPU over 90%, alert on it, disk over 90%, alert on it, right? Like, you know, more than 500 requests per second to the service, alert on it, right? Like, you get lost in all the noise, right? And I and that's why I really exactly. love the thing that you said about, you know, measuring what actually matters, right? Because measuring everything turns out to result in, in you drowning in, in noise. Exactly. It's like a, like a boy who was screaming about the wolves and all of a sudden you don't care about the wolves anymore because the, you know, it, it just happened too often. It's just kind of like a get used to it. I think uh, one of the, the important things to people to understand, they need to establish what the metrics are actually actionable or like some, some of the you know, threshold. So in this case, they can react on something. And maybe there's a, some threshold. It, maybe it's a, just like a CPU spike for a couple of seconds, you know, things happen. Like I said, the computers are unreliable. Software also unreliable. Right. Does and it matter unless it has an impact on users, right? And exactly. I think that the impact on users, we've already defined that in terms of our service level objectives. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So um, in terms of, um, so distributed tracing is the things to implement 
into um, into the system. Um, let's talk about like actual like product. There's a plenty of different uh, the products. Some open source. Some of the uh, SaaS companies that implement. Like uh, um, I know that um, you are participating in some of the um, uh, like uh, open telemetry uh, initiative where uh, it, it's uh, it exists to. First of all, it's actually. Uh, the merge to two projects as far as I understand in the past there was like a two uh... yes uh, so in the past there were kind of three different approaches you could take when you wanted to implement distributed tracing one of them was to go with your vendor's proprietary solution and then the other two were open tracing and open census um, which were one of them was founded kind of by the Jaeger and, and Zipkin communities the other one was founded by Google and kind of basically all these folks came together and said, you know what, it doesn't make sense to have, you know, this plethora of different vendors and also open census and open tracing. Let's just make it into one project. Let's make it so that you can instrument your code once and also have all these common integrations and no longer need to worry about, you know, if I change vendors, if I want to change from an open source solution to a vendor solution or vice versa, do I need to change everything, right? Like, can we just make it simple and easy for everyone? So yeah, I think that that is a approach that has now uh, paid off. Um, we have been officially announced as a CNCF incubated project. Um, we're the second most active project in the CNCF after Kubernetes. Of course, Kubernetes is kind of a lot bigger than us too. But like, yeah, and it's very you know, difficult we're, to get up to numbers of Kubernetes. Yeah, right. Like, but we have hundreds of companies participating. We have hundreds to thousands of of engineers who have contributed at one point in the past. Right, like. I think that it is a sign of project health and interest that so many people have said, you know what, instrumentation is table stakes, right? Our users are complaining about how much effort it takes. Let's just make it simple for everyone, right? So that that way everyone can instead focus on innovating on the kind of data analysis bit, which is kind of the more interesting bit. That's that's very interesting. So you mentioned like a thousand, like hundreds of vendors and uh, probably thousands of people. And, and users too. Yeah. And I was always wondering, how how what what's the um what's a good sign or like how to steer this community to keep it healthy to keep it you know keep everyone involved and uh, but not make it like a too much someone will you know the try to drag the stuff on their way some vendors they might have some great ideas and they have some great implementation they want to do this the, some other vendors will have a pushback do you have experience to you know you can share yeah, I think that there are a lot of things that we really admire about, uh, for instance, Apache Foundation projects, right? Like where everyone who is working on the project may be employed by a vendor or employed by someone else, right? Like, or maybe a volunteer, but ultimately we anchor things in like, what is the right thing to do for our customer base, right? Like what best suits our mission? Um, and while there may be perspectives um, that are represented, right? Like all of us are trying to represent those perspectives in order to better serve our customers, right? So here's a concrete example I can give. Um, there was a lot of pushback initially against implementing kind of sampling in the protocol for open telemetry um, mm -hmm. because there was kind of a lack of clarity around what does it mean to provide like a number for, you know, for sampling rate, um, right? What what does it mean? Can we make it unambiguous, right? Like what purpose is it serving? Is it adding excessive complexity, right? And there were some folks who were like, you know, yes, we need sampling and open telemetry prior to it reaching a backend. And other folks were like, our backend can handle it. We'll handle all the sampling on our end. Like, you know, please don't add sampling, right? Like, 
So we had a constructive discussion about it, and we're now kind of finalizing a lot of these recommendations uh, in the sampling working group, right? So I think that that's kind of an example where people from from different perspectives and backgrounds came together to figure out what was going to best serve our customer needs. And I think most crucially, we didn't necessarily put it directly into the 1.0 release of the open telemetry specification, right? Like we agreed we were going to kind of back burner it in order to get kind of the most critical stuff out so that people could immediately benefit from open telemetry before we started layering complexity on it. So there's just some right. of the technical trade-offs that we make every day. By the end of the day, it's not about tech. It's about how we can communicate our ideas in a civilized way without like uh, implying the egos, implying some of the, you know, some of the selfish interests and things like that to make the world like, I don't know, it's, it will sound cheesy, but to make the world a better place by, you know, having the civil uh, civil conversation about certain things. Yeah, um, and I do genuinely believe in that making the world a better place thing because, uh, you know, I spent so many years over my career watching developers and systems engineers struggling with bad systems, right? Struggling with the wrong tools, right? I think that those of us who work in the developer tool space recognize that there are so many developers' lives that we can make better if we help them do things a better way, if we help them have less downtime, if we help them have less frustration. Yeah, exactly, and uh, I would uh, I would drink to that because it's uh, also the responsibility of I, I feel this responsibility of myself to help showing the right ways, right tools, and um, so the people can build better software. I always I always consider um, um, the 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 software and software engineers, developers, they may be not serving. They always serving business, you know. It's not like something that like makes money. Usually, you know, development is a call center, things like. That. But by the end of the day, uh, in two thousand twenty one, without developers, uh, we cannot run the business uh, successfully because everything is digital right now, and everything is software. And software, it's 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 everywhere, and it's in that inevitable to do something without this. You can do um, the sell that lemonade, and probably you don't need to do any software, but still, you need to fail. Um, your like uh, the, the taxes from your income, and this is where the software will help you. So it's still right. Uh, or other know. things like um, you know, during the pandemic, uh, Honeycomb actually signed one of our customers, which is HEB, which is a grocery chain in Texas, right? And mm-hmm. part of the reason why they realized that kind of software was so critical was in that moment when they shifted towards digital purchasing, right, to have people check out online and have groceries loaded into the trunks of their cars, right? Yeah. I think that's kind of a moment that really highlighted that ever, that digital services are fundamental to our economy, are fundamental to people, you know, being able to eat. Yeah. I would like to, you already provided a couple, uh, couple of good reads for our listeners. Um, Usually, I like to ask my guests about. I I like to read or rather listening um, the the books, and I usually like to ask about something that you've written recently, or maybe not recently, but like maybe something that uh, impacted you uh, somehow. So you can share this. It not necessarily needs to be a technical book. It can be fiction, science fiction, or whatever. So, what uh, what would you recommend to uh, to our listeners? Hmm. You know, I did recommend the Dora report earlier. Um, I think that kind of from a technical perspective, it's a good encapsulation of what are the principles of being able to be sure that you have a resilient system that you can ship software quickly to. 
But I think that it's much more important to pay attention to the people and interpersonal aspects. Um, and, you know, it, it's a little bit of a, an old classic, right? But kind of, you know, how, how to make friends, right? Dale Carnegie, right? Like very, uh, how very, very yep. yeah, how to make friends and influence people, right? Like I, I think it is important to build interpersonal relationships especially in environments where you have teams where you have to collaborate across team boundaries to get things done, right? Like you, it's not, it's not just, you know, I, I write software, you know, I work on feature requests, I go home, right? Like it's kind of, we have to collaborate across teams and kind of have those relationships over the course of our careers. Yes. Um, and I would like to thank uh, Liz von Jones for joining us today at the Concast. Uh, I uh, well, we will put some of the contacts of Liz. You can follow her Twitter. She's uh, just you know, just trust me. Just yeah, go and, and I have a book me. coming out: um, Observability Engineering. It's yeah. being published by O'Reilly. That's great. So you should you should recommend this book as well. So yeah, the uh, Observability Engineering is coming in O'Reilly, and um, we will uh, wish you luck and uh, the huge success of this book. I was your host, Victor Gamov, and uh, thank you, Liz, for being with me at the Comcast today. Thanks to everyone out there for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast using your favorite application so you don't miss a new episode. Don't forget to drop us a comment if you have any questions for today's guests or if there's a topic you'd like to see us cover in the future. For more content from today's guest, you can join us on YouTube to see demo segment from this episode of Concast. We'll see you next time.